This is the Content Strategy Podcast, and I'm your host, Christina Halverson. On each and every episode, I interview someone I admire who's doing meaningful work in content strategy and all its adjacent disciplines. If you care about making content more useful, usable, and inclusive for all, welcome in. You have found your people. We're back again. Um, I have the coolest person on the podcast today, and I'm super excited to introduce you to her and to tell you how I met her. So let me tell you about her first. Catherine Karras is a cat lady and a UX writer in that order. She lives in the great state of Colorado and works as a senior UX writer on Google's help experience team. She mentors up and coming writers on ADP list and recently developed and taught a new voice and tone class at the School of Visual Concepts. In her spare time, she enjoys home cooking, fermentation projects, and pole dancing. And that is the final bullet on a list that absolutely no one uh, suspected would be on there. So Catherine, welcome. You're going to have to talk to me about the pole dancing. We don't need to start with that, but it's going to come back around. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, sounds good, Christina. Thank you so and much what, for having me. What, yeah. Absolutely. And what what is it that you like to ferment? Wait, is ferment the verb? Ferment is the verb. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess that would be the verb. Um, I like making kimchi a lot. That's just something I always have in my fridge because it's delicious and nutritious. I make some sauerkraut as well. I don't know. I haven't gotten into, you can ferment almost anything. So um, I'm starting a garden though this year. So if it goes well, boy, howdy, anything could happen. You are living the life that I often tell myself I should be living. <laughs> And yet I don't. I mean, home cooking, fermentation, and pole dancing, you're yeah. getting something very right that I clearly have gotten wrong. Hey, Catherine, I want to tell our listeners today how we met. Catherine was a registered attendee for CONFAB last year in 2022. For all of our CONFAB attendees, we offered the opportunity to pitch for a lightning talk. And a lightning talk is a five-minute talk that you give on the main stage, and you have five minutes and five minutes only. We often get people who actually go on to the main stage and just the stellar speakers. It's my favorite, favorite part of every conference that we do. Catherine took the stage and gave an absolutely knockdown, blowout five-minute presentation called Get That Money, Negotiation for Super Expensive Writers, That's You. I may have gotten on my feet at the end of it. I certainly was like doing a lot of whooping and yes, yes. queen. <laughs> <laughs> like the old lady that I am along the way. But it just blew me out of the water specifically because, well, I'll explain that in just a second. But first of all, I have to start with the same question I always start with, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to content strategy, content design, being a UX writer at uh, Google? Sure. Uh, everybody has a journey in this industry, that's for sure, because they don't tell you about this job in college. I was a theater major, so... <gasps> Catherine, I was a theater major! Yeah, okay, I don't know if you remember Confab 2020. I started, like, this theater people group, and you were, like, in my DMs. Oh, my like, gosh. I didn't know that was you. That's yeah, right. That was I was all <laughs> up in that. 
That's uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. I have it so many is. like journalism majors and psych yeah. majors. So every once in a while I get a theater major and yeah, I'm more the excited about it. I know. Okay. Yeah. All right. At the end of this call, we'll sing some songs from Limits together. Okay. Please. Sorry. Go on. Um, but yeah, we, uh, well, who's we, I and my cat, um, we graduated <laughs> and I had no plan. So I, I took a whole string of like subsistence jobs. I was a receptionist. I was a temp. I was a temp receptionist, kind of did it all. In the meantime, I was volunteering my time at night for my local theater company, shout out Annex Theater in Seattle. And that was great, but the lifestyle of like 14 hour days for like almost no money was catching up with me. So I decided I needed to figure out my career, figure out my job. I'd started thinking about like early retirement and like, could that be possible? So I decided to transition into tech because I saw like there's a lot of opportunity. It's a growth area. There must be something in there for me that I can do. Um, And eventually I uh, started copywriting, realized that that was something that I was great at. And from that minute, I was like, okay, I know what I want to do. I want to take words and use them to make the internet better. So I started teaching myself UX writing, learning a lot, reading stuff on Medium. I was day jobbing. I was side hustling. I was just kind of like trying to stuff all the information in my brain and try things out. So I built up a client base. I went full-time freelance. When I moved to San Diego, I uh, got picked up at a contract at Intuit as a content designer. So finally I was there with the right job title, um, getting that like big company experience. And my next role was at LinkedIn. I have switched jobs a couple of times uh, to try and find my right uh, fit. I think that's what we're gonna talk about today a little bit. But now I'm at Google and I'm on the right team at Google. And I'm working at the Help Center, and my opinions are my own. <laughs> Definitely not representing Google. <laughs> I'll have to get that in there. <laughs> um, I am just a little gobsmacked at how very similar our journeys are. I too was working in the theater and decided that perhaps I would like a card that was not my grandmother's from 1983. <laughs> I would like a nap. I would like a nap. That's correct. Money. I would like some self-respect. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I had, uh, I'm still in touch with several really great friends from that period of time, playwrights, professional playwrights who went on to make a living at this, but they always tease oh, wow. me because at one point they were asking me like what my next steps in the theater were. And I was just like, well, I have to work this other job because, you know, I have a mortgage and they <laughs> were mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, thanks for that. Anyway, how wonderful uh, that you landed in UX writing. And I'm so, I mean, it really speaks to your talent and your ability to communicate clearly and your charisma that you were able to land those contracts and those jobs with those Mm -hmm. uh, big name tech companies after basically just like inventing yourself as a UX writer. Yeah, it's hard. And it's, it's so much like a marketing job (laughs) to like get a job in this industry big time. Yeah. Say more about that. Oh gosh. Where to begin? Okay, so one thing that I tell people really, really all the time is invest in your personal brand. It is so important to be able to cut through the noise of, you know, jobs that may have 50 applicants, 100 applicants, 400 applicants, depending on where you are. It's so important 
to invest time and energy, and if you have it, some money into your personal branding. So for me, what that meant was back in 2017, when I was first going full-time freelance, I was like, I need a website and I need good photos of myself for that website. So I did it kind of on a shoestring budget. I think I I invested about $2,500 in this project. I hired someone I knew from college who was just starting out her web design business. So I got a kind of screaming deal on her services. She really helped me put together a website that made sense that had like different packages and services that I could offer people. I reached out to a local headshot photographer who I knew and was like, hey, I know you don't do brand photos, but would you do brand photos for me? And she was like, (laughs) yeah, sure. Like we can try that. And she gave me like a really good deal because she's used to just doing headshots for actors. It was kind of like a new thing for her too. So I combined all of this and I made this website that was like very me. It was very millennial pink, which I've, I've evolved beyond that um, <laughs> at this point. But yeah, I did that investment and it's really some of the best investment I've ever made in myself because it was like, I had this website, I had this narrative, people could read it and like see me and see what I was about and see or get an idea of what it might be be like to work with me. And of course I did all the copywriting and I made it super me. Like my favorite button text I've ever written was on that original site. It was get fresh hot words, which I just, I don't know. It makes me <laughs> chuckle. You can do it. You know why? Yeah. It's, yeah. You can do whatever you want. That's why yeah, you can't do whatever you want. Um, the reason I'm especially interested in this topic and we were chatting a, a little bit about this before we hit record is that obviously every time I log into LinkedIn, which is everybody's new home now, as we're seeing every day, somebody else is just like, well, I was let go of my job. Well, my whole team was like, oh, well, there's going to be 10%, you know, work reduction. I'm really worried about my position. I mean, I'm getting tons of, you know, DMs and emails just from people either concerned or who've lost gigs. So it's real, it's real serious out there right now. When we first connected, it was because you were talking about how to go after the big money, Mm -hmm. which in this environment might seem pretty far down the totem pole for folks. And so, and so, you know, for example, you're talking about, I mean, when you talk about a shoestring budget of $2,500, like that can be a significant investment for people, especially like who've lost jobs. Do you feel like folks who are out there kind of looking that this is still an investment that they should consider? I mean, what's the, how is that like kind of a competitive differentiator, I guess, when you're applying for jobs? Yeah, that's such a great question. So first of all, yes, I would never, ever recommend that people spend money they don't have to make some kind of career move. There are often like free or cheap or cheaper ways to accomplish everything, right? You can get your friend with a nice smartphone to take some good photos and that could be like good enough for your initial website. You can do a Squarespace site, drag and drop. You do not have to pay someone to do this for you. Like it was just, that was what was accessible to me in the moment. And I was like, all right, I think it's worth it. I think it is so important to consider your professional presence, no matter what the economic climate is. Like even when jobs are abundant and you are hot shit, like you still want to be telling your story. 
to the best of your ability. And that doesn't change at all, you know, when things are a little bit more rough. I would say maybe like you're looking for different kinds of opportunities. Maybe you're more open to freelance roles now since in-house um, roles are, are less available. Or maybe you're open to contract work when you wouldn't have been before. So like all of that may shift, like what you're willing to accept or what you need to accept is gonna change. But the way you tell your story, those fundamentals are still great. I always recommend like having that strong personal brand built up because you can always lose your job, right? Even in a hot economy in the States, we have at-will employment. If your boss doesn't like you, you can be just as screwed as if as if there's a major economic problem. So I think at the risk of sounding like way too negative, <laughs> always be prepared for potential job loss because it can happen to anyone at any time. And having your materials all ready to go and polished and, you know, your portfolio up to date. I know mine's a little bit out of date at this time, so I need to take my own advice. But having those materials uh, really reflect you and be um, concise and scannable and understandable will help you hit the ground running if um, something bad does happen to your employment situation. Talk to me about the portfolio question, because I've heard good and I've heard bad. I've heard necessary and I've heard, you know, not necessary. What role does the portfolio play? What should be in it? Who should have one? Is it just for writers? Should content strategists who are, you know, working on websites or enterprise, should they have one too? Talk to me about, about what you think about the portfolio. Ooh, okay. So many topics in there. Um, portfolio. Oh, I do uh, that. I'm sorry. I really do <laughs> it's that. It's okay. It's okay. You've pointed me in a direction. We can talk. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm like the scarecrow. <laughs> very good. Good work. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I talk to people all the time who are looking to get into UX writing and they're maybe like building up their portfolio for the first time. Um, I know there's a lot of controversy around portfolios. Some people are saying like, no, you shouldn't have to have one. But every job I've ever applied for pretty much requires a portfolio link. So whether that is like a Google Drive folder that has a couple of work samples in it or something more polished like a website, I think you do need those samples because um, employers are looking for them and they're generally going to want to see some indication that you have done some kind of UX writing. So have something. Something is better than nothing. Done is better than good. <laughs> have a thing is first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is to keep it really, really short and focused and scannable because your first layer that you have to get through is the recruiters, right? And they are basically just scanning for, is this person a UX writer? Do they have UX writing samples? I look at them. Do they look relatively polished? And they're not going to be doing that like deep dive into your process. That's going to happen later in the interview process. So you have to remember like your audience. You are appealing to recruiters who are scanning. Nothing against the long case study if you want to house it on your website. But I always, always, always recommend people have a TLDR version at the top where you bring up those statistics, the things that you've accomplished, the results of your project. Bring it up top because people are scanning and people are skimming and they are not going to read your 2,500 word owed to the process. So yeah, generally it's like you got to content design the crap out of your portfolio and had a brief stint as a hiring manager, which was weird. And that was what I was looking for. If I'm seeing that a UX writer isn't being concise and clear in their own portfolio, I'm also kind of going, can you do this work? Like, 
is this is this the job for you if you're not able to clearly express your work and its impact? Because we do that all dang day. I, as someone who has been hiring for 20 years, I can attest to, yes, everything you are saying is correcting. In fact, I will share with you right now that the project my manager who I hired a couple of years ago, I received 90 applications off of LinkedIn and she was the only one that sent me a cover letter. Ooh. And yeah, that's true. That's true. Hey. And so I interviewed her first and then I didn't need to interview anybody else. That is such a great testament to the cover letter. I I know, right? Yeah. And I didn't even, I wasn't even, I don't know. It's just the the things that you can do to be more conversational, to bring your own voice to, you know, the application without it being too much and, you know, still mm-hmm. being able to preserve that, that clarity and brevity. I agree with you. I think it's so important. Talk to me about, here's what I'd like to know, because you spent the greater part of 2021 and 2022 in the middle of a pandemic looking for work. And you had, you had a couple of hits, you had a couple of misses during that time, but yeah. it seems like you kind of honed in on, okay, during the job hunt process, here are the questions I need to be asking. Here are the ways I can be talking about myself in those conversations beyond the portfolio, beyond the cover letter. Tell me a little bit about what you learned. What were your do's and don'ts during that time? Ooh, do's and don'ts. Well, first of all, do have an elevator pitch. You're going to get sick of saying it over and over again (laughs) if you're getting a good amount of interviews. Yeah, but you definitely need an answer to the tell me about yourself. And it needs to be about your career. (laughs) So briefly tell your career story. Briefly talk about, you know, what motivates you, like maybe why you enjoy this work, why you got into it. Maybe mention some like core skills or key product areas that you enjoy working uh, in. And you might want to like tailor that pitch based on who you're talking to, right? Like if you're talking to a company where they're in a particular area of interest, you can bring in other experience from your life. So you really want that to be uh, accessible to you at any time. You want it to be polished, but you also want to be able to like know your audience a little bit and like add in whatever details you think might help the recruiter or the hiring manager, like get connected to you and connect you to the business and connect you to the business need. So let me, I'm going to interrupt really quickly. So what you're actually saying is that, because this this honestly never occurred to me, that you had the opportunity to put together like an actual well-crafted story where you're hitting the high points and that it's something that you practice when people come at you with that question? Yeah, I, I feel wow. like I do. I'm pretty good at like winging it and like going off the cuff. But if you're not good at winging it, like please write it down. Please like write your bullet points down and know like what you want to say. I certainly had enough practice over, you know, a year and a half like doing this uh, that I could do it in my sleep. But yeah, that's going to really help you and help the recruiter kind of make sense of you and your experience. Um, On that first call, they're really looking for like just fit, right? Do you have the skills and do you have the experience and do you have any other like special diamond qualities that um, make you shine, you know, like an affinity for the, for the product area or an affinity for the type of team. Um, I know you mentioned like asking questions and that is so, so, so important in this industry because Oh man, the experience you have as a UX writer can be so wildly different depending on the team structure. You could be 
the only UX writer on the team and you could be responsible for the whole craft and you could be serving 10 or 15 designers at a time, or you could be on a more well-resourced team where you're paired with a reasonable amount of designers. And like understanding like what you're looking for in that aspect is huge and um, really kind of poking at, you know, what is the work environment going to be? How good is the understanding of this craft of my manager? Because you're not always reporting to a writing manager. Sometimes you're reporting to a design manager who doesn't really understand what you're going to do for them. They know maybe that they need help with words, but they're really not sure what that might look like in practice. And you're going to have to show them. So really poking at that kind of team maturity was like really big for me because I wanted a team in my last job hunt with like more support, but maybe not so much support that the role is going to be boring, if that makes sense. I have a question that you may or may not be able to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. During your eternal job hunt, as it were, over those couple of years, talk to me about some mistakes that you made that were, you know, you were able to take some learnings away. I hate oh, it when people... I hate to say mistakes. <laughs> I think everything is a learning experience. But really briefly, uh, what happened was I was leaving a job and I needed more work. And I this sent me on a journey where I changed jobs three times in about a year and a half. So I changed companies twice. And then when I got to Google, I discovered that things were not the way that I would hope for on my team. So I moved on to another team. So we could call each of these misfires a mistake, but I wouldn't because like I met some great people along the way. I actually, I worked on some great teams and just met lovely folks and had lovely experiences, but like for whatever reason, the job was not it. So it was very long and very hard. I think the experience all added up to a sense of like being perpetually onboarding. And I'm just beginning to like get over that feeling. And that's such a struggle because you're not really contributing in your first couple of months. You're just like meeting people, right? And then as soon as you start contributing, then it's like, well, some, something happens that says it's not the right place. I have another better opportunity. And so I'm going to move on. I don't know. I wouldn't call them mistakes. I would call them uh, learning experiences. Maybe this isn't the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is, that is unusual for somebody to be confident enough in themselves. I mean, frankly, to just say, well, I took this job and I can tell already that this is not going to be a good fit either for me or for the organization. So I'm just going right. to call it and move on yeah. rather than like sticking around for two years just and going through the motions, even though I know in my gut that this is not going to last. I think that's so important. Like people getting caught up in like layoffs right now, especially it's like, dude, like the level of organizational chaos that is out there in corporate America is high and it has always been high. And like you get swept up in it and you sometimes you join an organization and you thought it was going to be a great opportunity, but like everything is like giving you the heebie-jeebies and you just have to leave. Like that is very no fault stuff. So yeah, I, I always recommend like, it's okay to change course when you know that something is not serving you. There is no like magical number of years that you need to be at a job that will make that job like a legitimate part of your experience. Like that's just not true, right? Like I was at Squarespace for about seven months and I 
launched a new product and I branded that product and I helped that team like get away from like a horrifying internal naming choice. <laughs> like I can be really proud of that and I can point to that um, even though I didn't stick around for a long time. So I have to say that what I'm hearing in your voice is that sort of outstanding self-confidence that was just glowing <laughs> on stage at Confab. And it is just, it is just like self-worth shining through, which is gorgeous to see in another in a human being. So I, I do want to ask because, you know, respecting to your point, the fact that some people just need security and that that's what's top of mm-hmm. mind, you know, whether it's for your family or due to health concern or just due to your values, that that is worth it. But I also think, and I will say, especially when it comes to women, mm-hmm. that still having the confidence to say, this is not right for me, or walking into a job, this is what I'm worth. And this is what I'm going to ask for and potentially hold out for is that's like a unique characteristic. I wish that it weren't, but it is. Can you talk a little bit about the things you talked about in your lightning talk at Confab? Mm, um, Sort of mindset for negotiation, tactics for negotiation, because I think it's, yes, you need to go get that money, but I also just think it's important some of these tactics yeah. are important just in terms of like having boundaries and setting expectations in life. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, I'll go back in time just a tiny bit. Um, early in my career, I had several truly horrifying negotiation experiences. For example, I was working as a temp at this uh, insurance company and I had taken over a woman's full-time job. I was crushing it. They really needed to hire me and bring me on full-time. So they eventually did. And my boss sat me down in the room and it was a union shop. So he put a piece of paper in front of me and it showed the schedule of wages, the minimum wages that you can pay a union member at, you know, when they're hired at six months and at a year, right? And he pointed to this piece of paper and he pointed to the middle number and he said, we're going to give you this six month starting wage because you've already been here. And I was like, oh, thank you. And I said, I'd like to negotiate this. You know, I think this role is really important and this is what it pays in other areas. Uh, I've been crushing it. My, you can look at my work. It's really great. Um, and my would-be boss pointed at the sheet of paper that he had in front of me and he said, I'm sorry, this is the maximum that we can pay you. And the sheet of paper, will recall, said minimums. So I pointed this out and he just kept repeating that the union would not allow him to pay me more. So it was a lie. It was a blatant lie. It was like so deeply offensive. (laughs) Every part of this, it's like, wow, do you think I'm stupid? Or do you just think I'm so scared that I'm going to say yes, that I'm going to agree to this? And So I ended up letting my contract expire. It was like over the next day, my team lead, who was actually managing all of my work, um, burst into tears when she heard because what was she going to do without me? And um, so, yeah, that was just one of the experiences I've had. There have been others. I don't know if other women have also like experienced this, but I think there's a like a huge level of adversarialness that can happen in negotiations when you're dealing with bad actors. So anyway, 
All that to say, when I came into tech, I was like, I really want to feel confident in negotiating because I know I'm going to negotiate, even though it's scary. And even though people have treated me like garbage in the past before when I've tried. So I decided I was going to hire a negotiation coach. Shout out Anne-Marie Hoftailing. She's amazing. Um, I hired her to help me with my first like negotiations in tech. And she just taught me all of these wonderful tactics to use that would position you on the same side as your recruiter or whoever you're negotiating with. So you want to use really like collaborative language. I'm so excited for this role. Thank you so much for the offer. You always want to thank them for the offer, even if it's insulting, keep it inside, just say thank you. And you want to reiterate like the value that you bring. Um, there's no shame in writing out bullet points. Um, and I, I love this tip for writers too. You do not have to negotiate on the phone. If you are so freaked out by this, you can always just say, thank you. I need to review it. Um, could you send me some information on the benefits and I'll get back to you. And then you can move the negotiation to email, which blissfully is like our favorite place because we get to take our time and we get to choose our words really carefully. So that's what I like to do. And then I write out some bullet points about why I'm an awesome fit, why I'm excited about the role. And I make my like big audacious ask, whatever, whatever that is for that situation. So yeah, I really, I kind of came into this industry with a lot of like fear around negotiation and hiring a coach really helped me build those skills. So now I know that if things go south, it's not my fault. I've done my best and I know I've used the right language. And if someone responds negatively to me, it's on them. And I can kind of put that in the dodged a bullet bucket. So this is all genius. If if someone is not able to hire a coach do you mm. have resources where they can go is are there like books that you could recommend on the topic are there newsletters or podcasts that, that you could recommend I have a cheat sheet that I like to share with people it also has all the information from my coach and her her mentee so I can I can share that with you in the show notes that's amazing did you hear that check the show notes jackpot <laughs> Well, this is great. We are at time. I do feel like there are 80 other topics I could chat with you about. Not only theater and pole dancing, which we didn't. <laughs> I know we never got back to that. Do you have anything that you'd like to say about pole dancing before we wrap? I would. If you've been thinking about trying it, go try it. But be careful. If somebody's telling you to go upside down in your first class, don't do it. Don't do it. Be really careful. And right now in teacher training with Vertical Fusion, which is a local studio in the Boulder area. And they're so wonderful and so safety conscious. And the women there are just completely supportive and weird and amazing. And it's just a beautiful community where you get to do things with your body that you did not think you could do. I want to tell you at the age of 51, after two kids, I'm pretty confident there are things with my body that I cannot do. I, Although of I course, will say our studio owner just turned 50 and is a grandma and mom of four. Oh God, <laughs> this is like the fermentation thing. What are you doing? You're just like putting <laughs> me in my place about stuff I should do. All right. All right. Yeah. I'll check out pole dancing. You can do it. I believe in I you. can do it. I can do anything. I'm a content strategist, damn it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Catherine, thank you so much for your time and energy and perspective and stories today. Where can people find you online? Oh, um, LinkedIn all the time. I'm so on LinkedIn. It's upsetting. What do you love about LinkedIn? 
Uh, well, I used to work there, so I'm like very biased and like shilling. Um, I love it because I've actually made real world friends on LinkedIn. People are, I mean, it's a professional platform, so people are behaving themselves a lot more than other places on the internet. It's also uh, kind of growing into an area where you can have like really interesting political discussions about work and about working conditions, which I think is is always fun times. Uh, I have to tell you, I miss Twitter. I miss the Twitter salad oh, days, gosh. but I'll try. I'll try I'm to get sorry. back to LinkedIn. I know it's a real. You're not going to pay lesson. for that blue check. I'm not. I'm <laughs> grieving, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> Catherine, thank, thank you so life. much for being with us today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from Rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com. And you can learn more about Brain Traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon. Thank you.